All right. Ready to go? Ready. Okay. Providing safe, clean drinking water to all people is one of the most basic roles and responsibilities for a functioning civil society. Yet, in the United States, the richest country in the history of the world, we often fall short of this rather modest goal. Aging infrastructure, rising costs, and ineffective governance structures all impede the ability to deliver safe water to everyone in America. And although it seems like drinking water should be nonpartisan, it too can become a prisoner of the political and cultural fights that have woven their way into seemingly every aspect of American life. This episode's guest is Annalisa Castle, Policy Director for Clean Water and Equity at the Alliance for the Great Lakes. We spoke about the challenges that communities face in ensuring clean water is available to all, and she offers some potential solutions. Note for listeners, we recorded this before passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, so you'll hear us lamenting the inability to move infrastructure legislation through Congress. That said, I don't think anything we discussed has been made irrelevant, as there's still much to do with implementation of the law, and there remains a long list of unfunded infrastructure projects that have to be addressed if we're going to have clean water for all. Annalisa Castle, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Okay, you are the Policy Director for Clean Water and Equity at the Alliance for the Great Lakes. Can you tell us a little bit about what is the Alliance for the Great Lakes and what is your role there? Sure. So the Alliance for the Great Lakes is the oldest organization dedicated solely to the protection of the Great Lakes. Um, The Great Lakes spans eight U.S. states, politically, geographically, very diverse, home to globally rare ecosystems, really important center of uh, economic activity in the region. And the Great Lakes provide drinking water to some 40 million people every day. Uh, It is one of the largest and most critical bodies of surface freshwater. And so over the last several years, the Alliance has increasingly been shifting its focus from sort of traditional conservation and um, strategies to also be focusing on the relationship between people and communities and these bodies of water, um, specifically in terms of how we use water, how we rely on water. Do we enjoy the benefits of clean water in an equitable way? Um, And so I've been part of building out that focus and, and we've come to really identify a few things, specifically on the drinking water side, um, clean, safe water that is affordable um, and readily available um, is seems like something that most people include, especially in our region where we are sort of rich in water, um, take for granted. And yet we know that water affordability is increasingly a challenge that many communities face, um, that lead service lines um, are causing problems in terms of contamination. Um, It's a big, hairy, expensive infrastructure project that communities face. The the service line is what carries drinking water from the water main under the street to the house. Um, And and many people, including in my home city of Chicago, about 400,000 households face 
the risk of contamination because that pipe is made of lead, which is toxic. And then the third thing is uh, that we focus on within sort of our drinking water portfolio is how water infrastructure investments are made. And that's kind of become the focus of my work. So I work across affordability, safe, lead-free water, and water infrastructure investment. So my job at the Alliance is to develop our policy priorities across those different drinking water issue areas, as well as a number of other sort of equity-focused concerns within the water policy space. Um, but, but my sort of day-to-day -day is largely focused on, on drinking water and community relationship um, to clean water. So you mentioned lead and lead service lines, um, and obviously that's a serious threat, um, and I want to talk about that more in a second. But more broadly, and maybe even beyond lead, you know, how clean, safe, and affordable, those were kind of the, that's the phrase you used, how clean, safe, and affordable is our water in the Great Lakes region more broadly, and in Illinois more specifically? That's a good question. And I think if you ask folks across the field, you come up with a lot of different answers. Um, I don't want to underplay how fortunate we are to have this incredible freshwater resource right in our backyards in the Great Lakes region. But um, when you look at water affordability in many of our Great Lakes cities, um, you're increasingly seeing water rates increase much faster than wages to the point where um, Chicago, for example, that's where I'm calling in from, um, we've increased water rates threefold over the span of a decade. And that doesn't even include touching the lead service line problem. Um, in Detroit, households, household incomes are not keeping up with the pace of uh, water rate increases. And you have communities like Phoenix, Arizona, where they pipe water in um, from hundreds of miles away, paying two thirds less than Great Lakes communities. So while the Great Lakes, it's hard to generalize across, you know, as, as many states and as many communities as, as there are here, um, but affordability is a real concern and it's increasingly a concern as communities take on more water infrastructure projects, which are expensive and need to be financed. Um, that burden is typically spread across um, ratepayers. Um, so affordability and, and water bill assistance um, need to be front of mind for local decision makers and frankly at the state level. And then in terms of clean and safe, uh, we talked a little bit about lead service lines. I think we're going to talk more about, um, you know, what it means to have drinking water carried through toxic pipes. Um, you know, when you have aging pipes made of toxic lead material, um, there are, of course, corrosion controls put in place. There are, of course, um, you know, some, there's, of course, some degree of monitoring. Um, so it's, I don't want to be an alarmist here. Um, but it, but lead service lines are a real threat. And when those lines get disrupted, when the corrosion control, um, you know, breaks apart, um, you risk lead getting into water. And in many places, um, that goes undetected until it's too late. Lead is toxic to human health. It is especially dangerous for children, 
and for brain development and for org essentially vital organs, even for adults. And so getting rid of lead service lines, replacing them with safer material um, and doing that in a way that is equitable, affordable, um, and transparent because most folks, like I said, you know, may take the water coming out of their tap. They may take for granted that it's safe and clean. Um, but how you communicate the issue to, to residents again, without being alarmist, but being serious about getting water quality, um, under control, um, is a challenge that many water systems face. So on, on the safe piece of the 10 states, with the most lead service lines in the country, seven of them are in the Great Lakes. Seven out of 10. There are only eight Great Lakes states. <laughs> and so part of it is about, you know, the age of our cities. Part of it is about, um, you know, the population change in our cities and how communities have been able to maintain that web of water infrastructure as, you know, depopulation and shifts in um, the city makeup have changed. Um, but at the end of the day, what we have is millions of households relying on lead pipes to carry drinking water to their homes, to, to, to drink, to cook food, to bathe their children. And so it's serious and it's got to be something that, um, you know, we, we keep we keep momentum on. And, and, and thankfully, there's been um, after, you know, decades of advocacy um, significantly more momentum in the past couple of years from both the federal and many state governments. And yet, you know, this is just the beginning of the, a pretty massive effort to get let out of our, our water systems. Um, and then just lastly, in terms of clean water threats, you know, we're, we're lucky to have very robust water treatment technology and facilities all across the Great Lakes region. Um, but increasingly, we're hearing things about for example, PFAS or forever chemicals um, eluding water treatment technologies and making its way into, into drinking water. That is something we've gotta be um, vigilant about. And I think, you know, in terms of, what is it? Like microbial contamination, uh, lead, chemical, we cannot take clean water for granted or take for granted that water is clean coming from the tap. Um, and we have to do everything we can to make sure we are, we are staying vigilant about making sure communities can enjoy safe, clean water um, in a way that is, you know, affordable and that, you know, that their bills aren't climbing past what they can, what they can afford day, day to day, month to month. In addition to sort of that safe, clean, affordable across those different sort of priorities and principles and values that, that we, that we work on. They're underlying all of it is how are we investing in water infrastructure and how are we governing water systems, community water systems. There is something really special about, I think, water as a utility in that it is one of the few utilities that is largely publicly owned and operated, meaning that there's a lot more opportunity for public input and public or oversight and governance of those systems. When you, but the flip side is that when you have um, so many communities, so in Illinois, for example, we have over a thousand water systems individually operating. And yes, there are associations and yes, communities can learn from each other, 
But when you compare that to a utility like gas or electric, um, which in, you know, maybe within a specific region, there's a sort of a monopoly. There's only really one utility, one game in town. Um, they are allowed, they're able to take advantage of um, economies of scale. They're able to do more and spread benefits across a, a, a broader footprint. And so there are some unique challenges when you think about water as such a fragmented sort of sector. And I think there are some important shifts happening where people are, are looking at how do we how do we maintain public control over our drinking water and also do more to um, spread both learning and benefits across communities so that you don't end up having, you know, for example, a community, a low-income community having low quality or unaffordable water um, because of you know, the, the constraints that that community has to operate under. Um, how do you make sure that, that communities can benefit from um, the, the learning of their neighbor? Or I mean, what we're talking about is like regionalization or consolidation, but what are the ways that we can have, have our water systems deliver something that is essential for human life in a way that is, um, you know, not governed based on its ability to, to turn a profit for private owners, but also take advantage of some of the, the learning and the um, people power and governance and business practices uh, that, that happens when you pull systems together across sort of municipal boundaries and, and can learn from each other. Governance and, and how we invest in water systems underpin all of those other things that we experience in terms of quality of life. Like, can I afford my water? Can I trust what's coming from my tap? And, um, you know, how is it going to affect my health and my children's health down the road? Um, those are, those are the, the, the sort of front and center questions, but underneath all of it is how we're investing and how we are governing those systems. Okay. Lots there. Let me go back to early the affordability issue, and because I, I wanted, I want you kind of almost gave an outline of what could be the entire conversation, and I think I want to go a little bit piece by piece and and break off a few of those. Let's go back to affordability. You talked about how water rates are increasing are increasing faster than wages, um, and you compare that to let's say Phoenix, where even though they're bringing water in from far away, they're they're pumping it in and piping it in, they're paying less. Why are water rates in Chicago increasing? Uh, why is Phoenix paying so much less? You know, is it fair to say that here we have a regressive rate structure? It, what else is possible? You know, are, what are the alternatives? Could could we fashion some kind of system whereby a um, kind of subsistence level of water for drinking household use would be, you know, basically subsidized or completely affordable, free even. And then, whereas maybe larger scale industrial uses, there's a premium on that. So a couple questions there, like what, you know, why is the situation such that it is here in Chicago or in Illinois? And are there ways to get out of that? Yeah, definitely. So I think the question of why are water rates increasing so quickly? Hmm, there can be many answers to that question. I think the sort of foundational piece, right, is that infrastructure is expensive. You're talking about water infrastructure, you're talking about digging up roads, you're talking about 
um, detecting and addressing leaks that, you know, like may go undiscovered for a long time. You know, there are communities that maybe have treated water, you know, that there's, they're putting money into treating water and millions of gallons are leaking underground and we just don't either, they don't know where that, that that's happening um, or they don't know, uh, or they, they know and they can't afford to dig it up and fix it or can't do it all at once. And so it's very, it's capital intensive to do water infrastructure projects in terms of water rates and how they can be structured. And I think the question you're asking is how do we bear those costs as you know, a society so that, that the water that we need to live and function every day is affordable and everything beyond that, you know, maybe takes has a higher has a higher price tag attached to it um and i think that's the question right like how do we across households across um, business across heavy usage industry um and then you know maybe subsets within those like customer classes within that residential use um should folks who have a lot more to spend um, be paying a higher rate. Like we're talking about distributive justice here. And there are a lot of ways that you can structure a water rate system um, so that you are prioritizing, making sure that everybody has what they need to live, to cook, to drink, to bathe. Um, and then beyond that, sort of distributing the cost. The problem is that that requires a volumetric sort of rate structure where, where you've decided, you know, the, the decision makers decide, this is how much we want to make sure everyone can access. That's, a, you know, what you call the subsistence um, level of, of water usage. And there are, you know, there are different um, metrics that either, you know, the World Health Organization, the UN, um, EPA have, have said, here's like the gallon per day. Um, that each family needs to live. And that's, again, like cooking, drinking, bathing. But like, what about a household? So still within that sort of residential category, like, let's say they also have a hot tub or like a pool, like, or let's say they like want to water their like massive lawn. All those might be considered sort of like luxury water uses or, or higher ticket items. So like, how do you distinguish between that a lot of times communities that have implemented um, some mechanism to say like, here's the foundational amount of water um, and anything beyond that, you know, the, the rate increases as usage increases. That's called an inclining block rate. Um, that requires us to be able to know how much water is being used. And that requires typically water meters at the household level. And the problem in many places, including Chicago, um, is that meters just aren't in place everywhere. I think Chicago is two thirds unmetered. So we are the world capital of, well, I'll say the US capital of lead service lines. We are largely unmetered and our water rates have gone up to finance water main replacements. And there was a decision made under the recent uh, mayoral administration that in that water, that 900 miles of water main replacement that, that, that the city is, is doing now, 
was not going to even include lead service lines. And so there are some really serious barriers that prevent a community like Chicago from getting to that place where we can think creatively about how to distribute the cost of water infrastructure um, and the things that we need to do before we can even get there are making sure that household metering is in effect, looking at smart technologies that help us understand um, not only water usage, but potential leaks, potential contamination issues. Um, we need to replace lead service lines so that you know when meters are installed, you're not cutting into a toxic line and spreading sort of debris throughout that, that flow of water. Um, so there are some really foundational things that Chicago has to do first, and those things in themselves are expensive. And so how you pay for that is a whole other set of questions. So one thing that, that I've been part of, along with some really brilliant colleagues in Chicago and across Illinois, is looking at water assistance. So under some of the COVID relief packages, there, there was... Um, the Low Income Household Water Assistance Program, LIWAP. Um, it didn't receive a ton of money, um, but it was something. And the idea is each state gets a pot and then they can distribute that across communities through you know, various layers of local partnerships. And the idea is for low income households, especially during this economic turmoil, this public health crisis, we're not gonna cut off water or we're gonna do our best not to, that's a whole other question of water shutoffs. Um, but we're going, to, we're going to provide relief. We're going to provide assistance. So that was the first national water assistance program. It's modeled off of something that exists already for heat and energy. So there are some like, I think exciting conversations in sort of the, the water policy and affordability space about increasing and making that sort of assistance permanent. Um, and yet assistance, like providing a little bit of relief, maybe a discount on your bill, maybe a, a, a small subsidy for a flat you know, dollar figure, that's one thing. But what you're asking about how do we structure the, the water rates to begin with, that's more about um, long-term sort of systemic affordability. So, so it's important to distinguish between what is assistance and what is affordability. Um, but then at the local level in Chicago, there's, there's a number of us who have been working closely with the city on um, how do we provide assistance at that local level. So um, I, think, I think the city has done a lot um, under the current administration to increase water assistance. So there's something called the Utility Billing Relief Program that um, you know, has been sort of the, the brainchild of a lot of, um, I think, well-intentioned folks who wanna figure out how do we deliver some measure of assistance as soon as possible. Um, and so it's essentially a 50% discount on your water bill for low-income households. And then if you can continuously make your payments um, for an entire year, water debt can be can be erased, can be forgiven. And we are currently working to try to expand that, to try to add in sort of tiers, because a lot of times in programs like this, you know, maybe households that are struggling with very expensive water bills um, or 
legacy water debt, you know, in some, in some, in some cases we're talking about thousands upon thousands of dollars. Um, and, you know, maybe previously you've had your water shut off due to non-payment. Um, the, the two things that we're trying to do right now um, is permanently ban water shutoffs. And, and Chicago, you may know Chicago issued a moratorium on that. Um, and, and the mayor's office um, has put forward um, an ordinance as modeled off of some of the ordinances that we've, we've proposed previously um, that will permanently ban water shutoffs as a, as a sort of enforcement mechanism, right? It's pretty inhumane to like, oh, you can't pay this bill? Like no water for you. Uh, and yet yeah, that's, that's policy in, in many communities. So there's banning water shutoffs as a, as a punishment for non-payment, as a punitive measure. And then there's also providing assistance and debt forgiveness. And so I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see Chicago expand its assistance and debt forgiveness program. I'm excited to see Chicago um, permanently ban the practice of shutting off people's water as a punitive measure. Um, but that deeper affordability question of how are we, how are we collectively bearing the burden of expensive water infrastructure, upgrades, maintenance, treatment facilities, that is a deeper question. And we've got to do a lot more first, like metering, like lead line replacement um, before, before we're able to sort of understand what are the costs and what are the opportunities to, to spread those costs across users in a way that is equitable and that is fair and that makes sure that everybody has um, access to safe, clean water that they need to live at a price they can afford. Reading the news, there's a lot of stories <clears throat> that make it sound like our infrastructure is old, dilapidated, in need of massive reinvestment. Certainly you mentioned the lead service lines and, and that's one piece of that. And the last two administrations at least have both talked about investing in American infrastructure. It was kind of a running joke during the Trump administration that every week was infrastructure week and yet nothing ever came out of that. Um, Biden got a bill out last year, which was the infrastructure piece, but there was a lot of infrastructure funding in the Build Back Better Act, which this week is more or less dead because of Joe Manchin. So, you know, I mentioned all that because it kind of seems like we don't have the political will to take on the big infrastructure projects that we need to, you know, that we need to address. You know, do you have any thoughts on, on why that is? Um, are there ways that we could bring the cost of some of these projects down or the time frame? You know, I read stories about what it costs countries in Europe to um, build capital projects, not necessarily water infrastructure, but maybe public transit or just other big capital projects. And, you know, sometimes it's like it's a fraction of what we pay in the U.S. And... You know, I think there's kind of a general sense that to address a lot of our, I think there's kind of a, there seems to be a sense here that to address a lot of our problems, climate related and otherwise, we actually need to do some building in this country, but the costs are very high. The timeframes are very long. Are there things that we could do to make this process cheaper, faster, so that we could actually get some of this done? 
Yeah, well, I think I think there are a few ways that come to mind for me. Um, I think in terms of finding efficiencies in the water infrastructure projects, okay, I'm gonna give you an example. Um, So lead service line replacement, something we just talked about, something I think about a lot. Um, You know, when you're replacing a lead line, whether you're, you know, a water department or, or one of the contractors that they work with, um, you've got to you've got to respect municipal code. You've got to respect state uh, laws that say, for example, you know, a drinking water service line has to be X number of feet away from essentially a sewage line. Um, we want to prevent contamination, right? Well, if that means that every time you replace a lead line because you can't really move a house or you can't, you know, like you have to then also replace the sewer line maybe maybe you're only six inches off but then all of a sudden you're you're the scope of your project doubles because of those guidelines i think there's like a question of like well has anybody looked into the public health implications of having these two different lines six inches closer versus further apart like like where like are there is there an opportunity to do waivers or are we just taking for granted that like okay if we're going to do this then we also have to do this cuz that's what the rule says and that rule is really old and maybe it's not backed by science or like there's a question there and so like being able to to follow up and do the research and ask that our public health departments you know, like where, where is there opportunity to find efficiencies so that we're not sticking households with huge bills? Um, if, if there's no real public health benefit to, to the rules that are on the book, and yet those rules are making a project two or three times as expensive, like let's, let's do some science, like let's do some research, let's figure out where those efficiencies are. So that, that's like one example that comes up in um in in the lead service line space and there are communities around the country that are have kind of recognized that like oh you know we haven't thought about this in a long time you know maybe those pipes were put in 50 100 years ago like let's revisit and see if the laws that guided you know how and where these lines are 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 installed like let's figure out if that still serves us or if there's an opportunity to find efficiencies there I think there's also um, a question around workforce and the kind of technologies that we're using. So for example, on the workforce piece, are, are there enough pipe fitters? Are there enough operating engineers? Um, are those labor pools also diverse? Because at the end of the day, all of that infrastructure funding is also, I mean, a lot of it's going to materials, a lot of it's going to planning processes, but a lot of it is going to be somebody's paycheck, right? And so do we have, do we have the people and do we have good representation within the workforce? Um, Because even, you know, aside from finding efficiencies and and having, you know, availability of of labor, um, there's also the question of who is, who is enjoying the benefit? of those um, those contracts and those jobs, right? Because infrastructure is a job creator. Um, so there's a piece there about, you know, if we're gonna be spending the money, who's gonna be benefiting? 
Um, and are we also paying attention to both building out the workforce and building it out equitably? Um, and ideally, so that the communities that are receiving infrastructure funding and projects and investment um, can also benefit from some of that job creation. And also, of course, economic activity that sort of ripples out from that. And then on that technology piece, I am not an engineer and I am not an expert in all of the things. Um, but, you know, you have different approaches to uh, fixing water infrastructure. There is trenchless technology where you don't have to dig up uh, everything, the whole length of the pipe. Um, there are technologies that tell us where and that can help us more precisely identify where um, where work needs to happen, where there might be contamination issues, leak issues, so you can prioritize. And then I think lastly, in terms of like finding efficiencies, I think the approach that planners and community water systems are taking to how and where they invest sometimes can be like wildly inefficient. For example, at, Again, drawing on that lead service line replacement sort of anecdote, if you're saying that like Chicago has a, has a sort of two-pronged program for lead service line replacement, it's still sort of in its pilot phase. One is called the equity program where the city will pay the full, will bear the full cost of full lead service line replacement for folks who enroll if you meet certain income criteria and certain your property meets certain criteria. And so you get like a pipeline of applicants there, you know, if, you, if you're successful in generating those applications and communicating with those households, which is its whole own sort of, um, and sometimes costly project of just getting the word out. Um, but, but then all of a sudden you have sort of a, a pipeline of potential projects and maybe one applicant lives on the northwest side of Chicago and the next one is on the south and you're going house by house, that is wildly in inefficient. Whereas the city could instead say, we're just going to go block by block and we're going to start in the places that the data tells us there are both public health and equity concerns that pushes you know, these areas to the, to the top of our priority list. And we're gonna do sort of lead line replacement at scale. So you're not moving equipment and sort of reconfiguring your like plans and the logistics for each project, but you're doing sort of a, a, a you're doing the work at a scale that is efficient. Um, so I think there's, there's the modernizing code and laws to find cost efficiencies there's workforce development, there's technology that can help us find efficiencies and cost-effective approaches. And then there's just the planning and how, um, you know, how communities do the work they need to do on their water systems at scale um, that can help us bring some of the costs down. You know, I think environmentalists, if we want to call ourselves that, um, often rightly get tagged as being NIMBYs, you know, not in my backyard. Um, and historically, environmentalists have often used regulations as a way to block projects. And, you know, whether it's um, 
you know, using the Endangered Species Act to stop some dam because of the snail darter, the small fish, right? So the TVA can't build the dam. And, and I'm not saying those were wrong or wrong headed. Um, I'm just acknowledging that that's been a tool. But um, I think it would be interesting and maybe beneficial for environmentalists, environmental groups to think about if there are really unnecessary regulations, perhaps unscientific regulations, like you said, I mean, do what is the actual threat of running these pipes together? I think if um, we considered, we as a community considered whether we could um, remove some unnecessary and impractical burdens from the projects that really have to get done, <laughs> you know, if we're going to live well in the 21st century, I think that could behoove us politically as well as just you know, addressing the problem of water or addressing the problem of, of transportation. So um, anyway, I, I appreciate that well thought out answer. Yeah, for sure. And I, I mean, I think, I think that's part, partly like a, a political tool that, um, you know, maybe the opposition, unnamed opposition to environmental sort of, of um, pushes has sort of, has sort of labeled the environmental community as anti, um, maybe anti-commerce or pro-regulation. But like the question is not about are regulations like writ large, are regulations good or are they bad? It's about what are we doing and in service of what? And then are there tools and instruments of government that we can use to get us there? And sometimes regulation is really helpful. For example, making sure that you know, to the best of our ability, we're not drinking toxic water. Um, we're breathing clean air. We are not destroying, you know, the, the ecosystems around us. Like, yes, like it's good to have guardrails in place and regulation can serve that purpose. But if our end goal is to have clean air, safe water, like healthy lands and ecosystems, and regulation is the thing that makes it unattainable or unaffordable, then like that's something that we should be okay with revisiting. And I think that like being in a defensive position as our sort of community, if we wanna call ourselves environmentalists, um, being in a defensive position constantly, I think does something to our ability to like think innovatively and um, you know, take risks um, because, because we spend so much time just defending, defending what we have won or what we have protected. And it's hard, I think, and I think you see this in the rhetoric of like restoration, for example, to restore what was, well, what is the, what does forward looking look like? Um, and I think when you talk about water infrastructure, and this is what's so interesting from an, for an organization like the Alliance for the Great Lakes, where we've spent so much time you know, in, um, you know, focused on, well, how can we put those guardrails in place to protect a resource? And then you layer in sort of this infrastructure question of like, okay, well then what does it take for communities to benefit from this resource and for us to deliver safe, clean, affordable water? Um, and, it, and it starts to shift not only how we think about, um, you know, sure, like rules and regulations, but like the role of the role of government and the, and the public sort of, um, the public benefit, public health benefits, um, but also sort of the public costs and how that's borne out. 
Um, and when you're talking about something like drinking water and you're talking about, you know, something so capital intensive as, as water infrastructure, um, the, the, those costs are higher and they're also often extremely localized. And so all of those factors become more acute, right? Where, you're, where you can actually quantify like at the household level, and usually this is really obvious to us in our water bills that, you know, we all have to pay or, you know, renters may pay through their rent. Um, all of those questions get reflected back to us in a, new, in a new light. So I think being able to sort of step outside of um, some, of those, some of those modes of thinking and be, try to be innovative, try to embrace um, some, some risk-taking, some um, experimentation, some new technologies uh, is, is critical. And I think that, you know, you see this in, in all kinds of environmental, you know, science-based um, policymaking. And so I think when it comes to drinking water, yeah, sometimes the regulation that's on the books, like, doesn't serve us. Sometimes the way we used to do things just is not going to, is not going to work for the way we need to do things looking forward. I mean, pipes have a lifespan, um, you know, the last time there was a huge infrastructure investment and so much development happened may have been, you know, depending on the region of the country, like 50, 100, 150 years ago. And so now like those bills are coming due. Maybe we haven't kept up with maintenance. Maybe we haven't been able to keep up with maintenance because of shrinking tax bases, because of shifts in population and, and econ the economic and industrial landscape in, in our region, for example, but those pipes are aging. A lot of them are reaching the end of their useful life. We do have this $50 billion injection of, of water infrastructure investment under the, the infrastructure bill that, that passed last year. And it's spread out across five years. Like what do we need to do in the next five years to put that those dollars to good use? The formula like isn't, isn't, perfect. It's not the same in every state or every community, um, but it's definitely going to require us to think about how do we do this in 2022, three, four, and not how do we do this in 1902, 1903, 1904, right? And so I don't want to, I want to move us away from like, is regulation good or bad? And towards like, what is the end goal here? And what are the tools available to us to achieve it? I agree. I think that was well said. Um... I love the point about environmentalists playing defense and, and how that can prevent us from being innovative. And I, I think, yeah, I just like the way you framed it about like, move away from the question, good or bad in, in regulation. Um, what do we want to achieve? And for the record, the unnamed opposition puts forward plenty of their own regulations. They like the regulations that benefit themselves. And they're often NIMBYs when it comes to their own, you know, competition for, for their particular project or industry. So. Um, yeah, I, I think we've just got to reframe the whole conversation. So um, you talked about, you know, there's kind of the, the water infrastructure itself. There's the pipes and the, the, the hardware, but there's also the governance. And, you know, you kind of mentioned how um, water is different than other utilities and it can be kind of fragmented and, and fractured. And on the plus side, there is... Um, the chance to have for the public to have a say in, in what's happening, but because it is fragmented and broken up over different districts and, and areas that 
it can be challenging. Um, what's the way forward there? How do you, how do we overcome those governance challenges? How do we maintain public control um, while avoiding the fragmentation problem? Yeah, that's a, that's a big question. And I, um, you know, when I think about water as a utility and in comparison to other utilities, um, you know, I think a little bit about um, Dr. Manny Teodoro, who's at University of Wisconsin. Um, he has, he has called water the most intimate utility. And I love that. Like water is, you know, of, of utilities, heat, energy, water, things that we need to, to, to live our, our sort of modern lifestyles, the, the, the things that we need to sort of power us through daily life. Like water is the thing that you put in your body. Like water is the thing that you need to live. And so I do think having an investment in, in like public appreciation for and buy-in uh, for like water, clean water protections and, and, and water governance is extremely important. And that's like, that is a public education challenge. That is a um, communication and education uh, challenge. And it's also about trust building between residents and the utility that is, you know, that serves them. And it's about um, building a public service mentality within water, water system operators, um, which, you know, of course, many of our public servants who work in the water sector have and are committed to. And, and sometimes, sometimes there's a need to think about sort of the culture around water, both on sort of the resident side and, and raising the profile, and then also on sort of the, the decision maker and the administrator side. And so I just wanna ground this question of like governance in, in sort of this attitude that we have maybe as residents I'm drinking like Michigan water right now, like um, there is, I think we, before we can talk about governance, we have to talk about the attitudes and norms um, and visibility of, of water, both on sort of the public and sort of resident side and um, in sort of the, the understanding among water commissioners, operators, um, the understanding of themselves as public servants, right? And having that sort of, um, ethos. And so then when you talk about, so there's work to do there and it can, and it might take time and, and creativity and investment, um, to sort of build that profile. Um, but that's, that, that's how you get to a place of, um, increasing sort of the political will for safe, clean, affordable water, um, making it sort of some, you know, we, we take water for granted. Um, I think, largely in the Great Lakes region because we have so much of it and we have an abundance. But I think taking for granted too that water should be affordable, that there are some, there are some things that should be um, no question, right? Like I should be able to have this glass of water and like stay hydrated throughout the day and the hot summer, um, a hot Midwestern summer. Um, like that, that is a different use of water than like, you know, maybe my neighbor's right to fill up their pool. Um, and like all of those sort of under, like all of the culture around water and how we think about it as something that we need to live and, and how we think about it in, a, in an, an urban setting as, you know, something that 
moves underground and takes a lot of work to get from and energy to get from you know its place out in the lake over there to my household tap like that is a whole sort of um picture that we need to 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 paint uh do a better job of painting but then when you talk about governance um you know i think it is it is important that water is public and is publicly um controlled and yet you know, this is a little bit of a challenging comparison to make given the, the recent investment, federal investment in water infrastructure, which is sort of at a at a sort of generational level, $50 billion um, for, for water across the country, which is you know, still not enough. I think I think estimates put the, our water infrastructure need at about a $1 trillion price tag over 25 years. Um, but it's still it's still a big deal. Um, but this new investment comes after decades of disinvestment from the federal level. And so all of a sudden you have costs, the, the, the portion of these infrastructure costs that are borne locally by residents has increased over time as the federal level of investment and state investment has decreased over time. So I think that um, one of the recommendations that continually comes up in terms of um, how to overcome some of the, the challenges of this like highly fragmented water utility landscape um, is through consolidation or regionalization, um, meaning that neighboring utilities can sort of put their um, can pool their resources it doesn't necessarily mean that now I'm going to build a whole new web of pipelines from my town to your town. Um, but it could mean that we're going to um, share personnel. It could mean that we share costs. It could mean that we share, we do joint applications for infrastructure projects or share contractors. Um, and there, and this, you know, some some folks have pointed to the the opportunity for this approach to help retain top talent in the water sector. You know, some some smaller communities might have like a couple of public works staff who are on the hook for maintaining water services and park space and like a bunch of other things. Like, what would it look like if we could share some of those resources or know-how or personnel? across neighboring communities um, to be able to retain talent and um, operate effectively. Um, and, so, and so that's sort of one recommendation that kind of comes to mind when, when you ask questions about governance. And, you know, consolidation or regionalization can also be very political and it can have um, real impacts on people's either quality of service or cost of service. Um, and so I would just provide a major caveat that says if, if when looking at regionalization, um, really doing deep community engagement and trust building and giving folks the tools to weigh in in a public input process um, has, has got to be sort of front and center. And then another sort of governance question that you know continues to come up 
in, um, you know, in, in conversations about how do um, states administer all this new federal funding for water infrastructure, um, specifically through the state revolving fund program um, and, and others, um, is about the role of the state, not only in doling out cash to, to communities, um, but also structuring the application process for funding um, to be equitable, to require communities to do um, public engagement, to um, having some level of oversight over some of the management practices, um, you know, or how, how communities manage water revenues, how, water rate, ratepayer dollars. Um, so I think, so I think there's a lot there um, right now. I've heard, I've heard, I've heard folks call it sort of the wild, wild west. Like, I don't know if that's a good connotation or not, but like, you know, if each community operates their own system independently, goes, it goes their own way in terms of, you know, how are we financing our projects? How are we, um, how are we collecting revenue from our ratepayers, and then what are we doing with those dollars? Um, I think there's a lot more opportunity um, to to share best practices as as, and I think there's a role for states to play in um, increasing public participation at the local level and getting localities to sort of collaborate where where it's strategic, because water doesn't flow according to municipal or state or national boundaries for that matter. Um, and so how do we how do we jointly manage water resources? It's a little easier when you're talking about water through a pipe, but like, you know, your Prairie Rivers network, you know water flows across across lines all the time. And so having decision makers sort of within those political boundaries be in communication or in collaboration with each other, um, I, I think is a, is a real opportunity. So I just think that there's a lot there and it's going to be so, so important as climate change continues to shift, um, our water availability. Like, I mean, we talk about the Great Lakes as a water rich region, but even in my, you know, I'm, in, I'm calling in from Illinois, you know, Joliet and Illinois are putting together a multi-billion dollar deal to pipe water from Chicago Southwest to Joliet because the groundwater, like the aquifers are drying up. Like this will continue to be an issue. The politics of water um, are going to continue to shift as climate change continues to shift temperatures and evaporation rates. And as, you know, contamination and forever chemicals, like as those go unchecked, like we're going to have some hard questions to deal with. And so having those governance structures in place and having public sort of visibility and accountability um, around how how water is distributed and, and protected um, and paid and how those things are paid for is going to only become more important. Well, you know, a couple things and like I have to jump way back to that beginning of that response, but um, you know, and I'm going to rephrase it and maybe in a way that you didn't exactly say, but you kind of sound like we need to change culture. We need to transform the culture around water, what we think about water. Um, and I really appreciate you mentioning that. I'm, you know, kind of a believer that culture is at the heart of so much of all of this, all of our work, really. 
um, I, I think often it feels like, you know, if we can just get 51 votes or if we can just get one extra vote in this election to get the right person in place, just and then and then they'll vote for the right policy and then we can implement that policy. But I think I'm just more of a believer that we really need to transform culture at large, because I think all that other stuff is at best downstream. So, um, you know, not that we shouldn't be engaged in <laughs> political fights or political battles. I think there's also a tendency to walk away from politics and just, well, we'll just, we'll just work on culture alone and, and make TV shows and movies and music. And, and I don't think you can walk away from the policy realm either, but I think too often, and here I'm going to fault some of the, you know, there's kind of a, chain of causation within the NGO environmental world. And there's the funders and there's the organizations and there's the individual activists. And um, I understand how funders are, you know, they're giving away millions of dollars and they want to see return and they want hard deliverables. And, you know, we want to see what you're going to accomplish. There are some needs that revolve around cultural transformation that I think are hard to quantify and objectify but are still extremely important. And I would like to see the broader environmental world, environmental community take those seriously. So anyway, just quickly want to respond to that. And then you mentioned a couple other things and, um, you know, yeah, we, we typically in Illinois, it's not a problem of scarcity. If anything, we have too much water, whether that's in the city with flooding or, you know, out in the hinterlands where I am. And it's like, let's tile drain the, our fields. Let's get the water out of the fields. Cause actually we'd be a swamp if we didn't manipulate the landscape, you know, we'd either be prairie or we'd be swamps. Let's get the water out of here so we can plant. So it seems like at least with regards to the affordability question, it's not often a matter of like, well, the resource is scarce. So we want to price it high. This isn't Arizona or parts of California. Um, it's really about the um, just paying the upkeep for the human systems that allow the water to move and, and treat it and, and, you know, deliver it and take it away. But there are um, there are some exceptions, like you mentioned, Joliet. Um, nevertheless, we're a resource rich region when it comes to water. But we've got millions of people living in the arid southwest um you know do you see this is slightly off off slightly tangent but do you think there's going to be pressure to take water out of this region out of the great lakes and move it to other areas of the country um and what's you know i i, I is alliance for the great lakes thinking about that is that something that's on your radar and, and what are your thoughts on that yeah, that's a question that um, you know, comes up from time to time. And I'm really lucky at the Alliance to work with some folks who were instrumental in, in drafting and, and securing the passage of the Great Lakes Compact, which essentially keeps Great Lakes water in the Great Lakes Basin. And compacts exist all across the country. There are water compacts that govern you know, water sharing essentially in the arid southwest and so just from sort of a political standpoint i think there are a lot of folks who will tell you that 
you know, draining the Great Lakes is not gonna happen because the compact protects us. And Congress has never changed or dissolved a compact between, for example, neighboring states and, and uh, everywhere where compacts exist. Um, I've seen some really great color-coded maps of where compacts, water compacts um, sort of govern how water is shared. Um, and, and you can you can find that. And so there's this question of like, well, would Congress would, you know, would 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 the compact, the Great Lakes Compact come under threat if things got dire enough elsewhere? And I think one concern, uh, I, I think that's a valid question, um, but one concern, right, is like, well, if, if Congress can just change the Great Lakes Compact, like what's to stop Congress from changing all these other compacts that maybe are part of the reason why, you know, scarcity issues are coming up as we've maybe overdeveloped parts of, of the landscape that actually don't have, or are not projected to continue to have the water that they need to, to continue functioning over, you know, the, the, a longer timeline. Um, so I think it, it, one answer to that question is like, Great Lakes water is, is stayed in the Great Lakes Basin under our current laws. And I think there are a lot of things that we can learn um, from the Southwest, from arid parts of the country and world where they've figured out how to be extremely efficient with water, with the water they do have. Um, you know, you mentioned that we have an abundance and sometimes it's too much water, which is also costly <laughs> to, to deal with. Um, and that's part of the affordability question and like, how do we share those costs collectively? Um, but I do think in terms of efficiency, there's a lot to be learned from innovators and you know, water resource managers in arid parts of the country. And I also think that like maybe a, a more productive frame for this, like how do we deal with drought? How do we deal with the effects of climate change in places that are getting hit really hard? Um, rather than you know draining the Great Lakes to make it possible to continue under like our current sort of, you know, what our current culture sort of dictates as like, you know, a a, a comfortable lifestyle in the desert, maybe it's like, how do we prepare the Great Lakes region to have effective services, to have affordable housing, to, to be able to receive essentially climate refugees? Um, I mean, relocation and like these big questions are so, they are fraught, they are personal, like people's sense of home. And, you know, like I said, like, like we've, like we've, heard before of water being such an intimate like you know utility but also it's not just a utility it's like water is part of our of our world and our landscape it's not only for our sort of extraction and like you know ability to to live our you know American lifestyle um we have to protect water where it is we have to develop our we have to start think in, in terms of that culture shift we have to start thinking about how we how we build our communities and shape our lives around water as something that must be sort of respected and protected and that we can't take for granted, right? And so I think, um, you know, the, draining the Great Lakes is kind of like a worst case scenario. And there are examples from, uh, you know, around the world where, 
you know, a, a large body of water has been essentially drained to provide irrigation in places where like naturally maybe it, they, they wouldn't, like you were saying, we've manipulated the landscape even here in a, in a place of like abundant water to have less of it in certain places so we can grow certain things. I think part of what we need to think about is like, do we need to update our understanding and like have inject a little humility into our uh, sort of ways of developing and managing our lives and, and the and the things that fuel our lives. Um, and I think in terms of sharing the wealth of water that the Great Lakes has, like one way that we can start to to do that really well is doing it within our, within the existing region. Like if there are huge disparities in terms of who can, who can trust their water, um, if we have communities of color and if we have low income communities that are disproportionately um, paying a larger part of their salaries to water rates or buying bottled water because they can't trust their water. If we are having uh, lead uh, poisoning and contamination, um, if we are having um, microbial and PFAS contamination, if we're having, if we're having water disparities within the region, like let's address that and let's build our communities to be able to receive and welcome, hopefully repopulation, right? So much of our region, you know, we talk about the challenges of, you know, legacy cities in the Great Lakes region where people have left, um, where jobs and industry have left and, and, and people follow. But I think in a, in a, hotter future, hotter in this region, wetter future, like how we manage water and how we shape our communities and are able to sort of receive and, and more equitably share the wealth of, of water that we have, um, potentially with people who move here because other places become less comfortable or in some cases unsafe. Um, we can start now by improving how equitably we share in our in our water resources with the people who are here and how we build for the future. The other thing too, and like the Alliance is a bipartisan or nonpartisan, we're a nonpartisan organization. But I think that like, like water is not partisan. Like you can start to like some of the things I've talked about, right? Like how do we share the burden? Like how do we share decision-making power, like these governance questions, affordability, like how do we prioritize like getting clean water, like, like as a value, like those, it's like very, you could put some of those things like into, well, that's like what a leftist would say. And this is what like a, a private enterprise would say, like, you know, like, but, but those are so, that's like just manufactured. Like it's like, it's like water is, is truly a nonpartisan. This is not a partisan issue. And like, it is actually something that, you know, when you think about the left and the right, people tend to agree on, on clean water as a value, as like a thing that we should prioritize. How we ensure, achieve clean water, protect water, how we share costs, sure. Like we can fight about that, but at the end of the day, like it shouldn't be complicated to say that everyone deserves safe, clean, affordable water. Um, like, I don't, I don't think of these things in partisan terms. And it, I think of them, like, I think of our work as life affirming, you know, like, that's, that's the frame.
Yeah, well said. You know, you mentioned that water crosses political boundaries, and partly that's a function of water doing what it does, but it is also a function of many of our political boundaries being very arbitrary. And um, I think there's something appealing and maybe some potential in rethinking some of our political boundaries to be more geographic in concept and scope, to think about the watershed as a political entity. And I mean, I have days and moments where I'm not sure this country is going to hold together, <laughs> you know, as it's currently constituted. Um, and, you know, I think, that the, you know, there is certainly a project ongoing to put power back in this, you know, there's this constant battle about whether the power is vested in the states versus the federal government. But I think even a alternate third way, however things happen, whether we stay together as, you know, a, a republic of states, or if things do fracture, I think there's possibility in the geographic, the regional um, political entity. And, you know, that's one, one reason why I'm, I'm interested in like what Alliance for the Great Lakes does, because I think the Great Lakes region is a great possibility there where, um, you know, it's defined by water and it's defined by a thing that you said is nonpartisan. And, and, you know, and I think that's important. Um, and there are certain things that really we're only going to be able to get done at scale if we're organized in a broader scope than, you know, just the local, just the municipal, even just the state. And so maybe these regional entities, these regional political entities that um, ha may have some basis like the Great Lakes Compact, but maybe there's even opportunity for more for, you know, for it to be more fleshed out, to be uh, more fully realized that maybe there are opportunities there to work together to tackle some of these problems that are collective action problems like climate, you know? I mean, definitely. I think I think the Great Lakes region, you know, it's something that I, I know well, um, but you know, you have the Great Lakes Commission, you have the International Joint Commission, you have nonprofits like ours, um, like the Great Lakes, St. Lawrence governors and premiers, like you have the Great Lakes Cities Initiative, you have these different formations, both on sort of the government and, and NGO side of trying to wrangle some of those political entities into sort of a cooperative, um, you know, formation to with the goal, right, of protecting Great Lakes water. Um, you know, they. I think I think if the Great Lakes region were its own country, it'd be like the third largest economy in the world or something like that. You know, there are all these um, ways of slicing it and like looking at um, our region. And, you know, I don't want to I don't want to indulge like secessionist nightmares or, or fantasies as like <laughs> instrumental to this conversation, because I think regionalism, like no matter what happens, like what we do here in Southern Lake Michigan is going to impact our neighbors and vice versa, right? And so no matter whether you're talking about upstream, downstream, you're talking about the watershed, the, the region, you know, political formations fitting within that, that region and, and, and watershed, um, there has to be cooperation and there has to be communication. And that's one piece too where that culture 
um, and sort of our, our attitudes and like norms around water, like cuts across all of that. Um, and then you have to layer in all the different like political, uh, political jurisdictions and authorities. Um, and that's, you know, that's why the Alliance works across the state, federal and local levels. Um, obviously we can't be everywhere. Um, eight states, a whole lot of municipalities and the federal government and our neighbors in Canada. Like there's a lot of ground to cover it. And so it does need to be like an all hands on deck approach. And there are really amazing organizations and, and entities out there that try to do some of that work. Um, but you need to be able to have communication and collaboration across political uh, lines um, and, and borders. Um, and you also, in addition to sort of the narrative building and the, and the norms um, that need to, to shift and evolve, like we also have to be able to navigate the different political entities and sort of layers of, um, of federalism, if you will. I, uh, you asked me originally about like my most exciting project and I do wanna put a plug in. I'm working with some inc incredible women um, across the country to host uh, a convening that we're calling the SRF Advocates Forum. Um, the State Revolving Fund is the, is the program um, that is channeling most of this new $50 billion of infrastructure, water infrastructure funding. And so we've been able to, I hope, foster a sense of collaboration and sort of a diverse collection of folks across the country who are working on these programs or working on those quality of life issues that they underpin, like affordability, like lead-free water, like flooding and climate resilience. Um, and so it's been a real joy to learn from sort of experts across these different issues and to put my head together with folks who are working to navigate the federal policy piece, both on you know, Congress and the administration, um, agency work, um, in some cases, folks that are looking at um, state level administration, that's where I've really been focused, folks who are like on the ground in communities, like how do we put together an application that we're, it's gonna get funding um, to the places that are most needed, that funding is most needed. Um, so there's, that's been a really fun project. Um, and I think it's going to continue to evolve. And I hope that, you know, it follows this like trajectory of working on like these governance and culture questions beyond sort of the lifespan of this funding package through the prism of like water governance and infrastructure investment. Um, but this is all sort of a roundabout way of saying like, one of the fact sheets that I, this is, doesn't need to be included, but like one of the fact sheets that I propose do we include in the set of resources that we're building is like federalism. Like what is the role of each level of government in this whole pipeline, like no pun intended, um, of, of, of how dollars are flowing and how these investments get made. Um, because I do think that like how cooperation happens across levels of government and sometimes jurisdictions and sometimes like, you know, binational or international agreement or like across watersheds um, is important. And, you know, and we have, I have colleagues like who work on, for example, the Mississippi River or, you know, 
watersheds around the U.S. You know that you know maybe miles and miles away are somehow connected to the Great Lakes. Sometimes uh, it's a little more abstract, but I have people tell us all the time, like the Great Lakes is so lucky because you have like we have so many people working on clean water, and we're so well connected, um, and we work well together. Um, and so I think there's that's like I think very beautiful and I also think it's like a very strong place to start on addressing some of these questions that we've talked about today. I think that's a good place to end then Annalisa. I want to thank you for your time and for your expertise. We appreciate you talking with us. Thank you. This has been such a joy. Uh, we covered a lot of ground today and I hope that we'll get to continue some of these conversations soon. Yeah, I hope so. Thanks. Thank you to Annalisa Castle from the Alliance for the Great Lakes for the deep dive into the state of drinking water in Illinois and around the Great Lakes, and for all her work to ensure that drinking water in Illinois is safe, available, and affordable. If you'd like to support this podcast and the work Prairie Rivers Network does to protect water, heal land, and inspire change, you can donate and become a member at prairierivers.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.